Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Country Music Made Me. Thank you so much for joining us once again. As always, please be sure to like, share, follow, subscribe to us wherever you are listening. You can leave us a review, a rating, tell your friends, your family, your neighbors to come on over and have a listen. That support is huge. Today, we are joined by Canadian country musician Andrew Hyatt. Now, he jumped into the Canadian country music scene in 2017 with his debut album, Iron and Ashes. But as we found out during our conversation, his career began long before that. We talked about his days playing in a Christian rock band in church, getting a nine to five job after graduation, and the events that led to chasing a career in country music. So please enjoy our conversation with Andrew Hyatt. the guitar that you first started playing on i saw one post that you talked about an old guitar that had only three strings that was missing some strings and you played on it and then i also saw that your grandma had bought you a guitar i believe around 17 so were those two different guitars um yeah so what it was was i had a my grandmother actually had purchased me um this harmony little like three-quarter or half-size body kind of guitar and that was kicking around my house. And then um, it, you know, from the time I was young, I just, I, I had long given up lessons at this point. And then when I was uh, 11, I started wanting to learn a little bit more. My sister was dating this guy who was uh, a pretty good guitar player, pretty good singer. And I remember hearing him and his brother like sing and like harmonize with each other for the first time. That was like the most like one-on-one interaction with music I'd ever had. And I was like, that's the coolest ever. Like I got to that um and so i picked up this guitar and it, yeah it was missing uh the top uh, the high three strings so i just was learning power chords <laughs> and then my mom was like well he's like playing a guitar a lot um so for i'm trying to think oh no and then my grandmother ended up giving me she had uh, a fender acoustic that she had wanted to learn on and i ended up uh taking that and kind of carrying on from there and then there's a few other guitars that have come and gone but yeah Nice. And your grandma, I saw a post from a few years ago, I think it was 2013 on your Instagram, and she was cutting up quite the rug dancing in the living room. And so I I wanted to learn a bit about her and the influence that she had on you growing up. Was she a pretty musical person as well? Uh, I I mean, I think as, as like a music lover, I would say she absolutely is a huge music lover. Like even now, I bought them um, like a Bose uh, just one of the most stereos, like the Bluetooth stereos. And I, right. I got her signed up on my Spotify uh, uh, family plan because I've, I've got both Spotify and Apple. So I'm like, I'm not using this. So I signed her up. And every time I go over there, my grandfather's like, can you turn that down? Like it's too loud. <laughs> can't talk. He's just grooving. Um, so yeah, definitely as a fan, she's always been a lover of music, of all music and uh, very, uh, very strongly opinionated when it comes to my music, the song she loves, she loves. <laughs> why aren't they making that the single? That should be the single. That was kind of nice groove to it, you know? Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of her vibe. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that she early on was like, Hey, you know what? Here's a guitar that you probably won't appreciate until you're a lot older. Um, I, I, you know, I appreciate that gift more and more as time goes on. And I'm like, this is my life and this is what I get to do every day. So it's, you know, that seed is, is uh, definitely a great one. That's awesome. And with your guitar playing and your singing, when did it get to the point 
where you formed your first band because there was a Christian rock band that was sort of your first project, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow, you dug deep. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, growing up in church, obviously, um, our, we had like youth and junior high bands kind of that would like lead the music. And I just remember being like, oh, I don't like on, on Sundays anyway, I was like, oh, the music is not that great. Like, I feel like I could do that. And I, I really had no musical experience whatsoever. <laughs> I was kind of singing in church at that point uh, and like playing guitar in my bedroom, playing like punk rock songs. Right. Uh, and uh, so there was a few guys at, at, at the youth uh, group and we were just like, yeah, like you can kind of play bass and you like the drums. You can't play them, <laughs> but you like them. And then we had a guy who actually had guitar lessons. We were like, sweet. And then I was like, yeah, I'll sing. Cool. I'll be the singer. <laughs> uh, and then that kind of morphed into a set of brothers who moved to town and they were both, um, yeah, it was a drummer and a guitar player. And then my bass player and uh, keyboard player were both brothers as well. So it was me and two sets of brothers, which made for some amazing brother fights. It was hilarious. I bet. But the nice thing was, is we had keys to the church, which had, you know, these killer sound systems and like, like this, you know, this big Pentecostal church. So it had, you know, we had monitor mixes and we had huge big towers that we were playing on and the drum kit was there. So we got to play half the time our rehearsals sounded better than 90% of the shows we got to play at because they'd just be these terrible little punk shows or like rock shows or like Christian rock shows. And they would sound like garbage and we'd be like, man. Let's go back to the rehearsal space, quote unquote, church basement and, uh, you know, rip some tunes. And so as far as music, that was sort of the beginning. But when it came to the country music, did that sort of come later? Because you sort of went towards work life, right? Rather than music right away. I believe you were going to be a pastor. You were studying for that. That was sort of a route you were thinking about taking. And then you did went to work in the mine for a bit. And so how many years was that all consumed within? Yeah. So at, uh, basically I graduated high school and from there I went and I worked as an intern in a church, um, doing, basically working towards being a youth pastor. Um, I was kind of leading the, the youth program there and working on the side because the church, you know, wasn't obviously in a position to pay that much. Right. Uh, so I was working as a gas fitters apprentice, actually doing um, natural gas line installs during the day. And then at night I was doing music and youth games and all of that fun stuff. Um, yeah, that that was like kind of a short lived period. I think I just I got a glimpse of what life was like. I was looking at the head pastor and he, you know, was a great guy and a good human being. But he just I could tell. It was just a stressful dealing with people on a day day to day basis. Then you add in religion can be a really stressful thing. Right. Um, yeah. This is not my vibe. I got to get out of here. Um, so I pulled a complete 180 and I w went and worked in a trade for um, three years and then like I, I'm thankful that I got that experience, but I woke up every single day of my life, just trying to figure out how I could not go to work. I can remember sneaking off into like C cans when like flip phones were just kind of first starting to be able to take voice notes. Um, and I'd have like an idea for a song and I'd be like, Oh, I gotta go get like some gear. And I'd get in there and I'd like be, be like making voice notes to try and record a song or like calling my own phone and leaving myself voice messages. Right this is an idea and then getting home and staying up till three, writing it and then getting up at six, going into work, hating my life because I'm exhausted. Um, 
from there, I ended up going back to school um, for indie music production, which for anybody who is, you know, thinking about doing that or has done it, you know, that it's kind of like going to school to be in the circus. You, kinda <laughs> have find, you have to find a circus when you're done. Right. Right. Uh, and it, it taught me a lot of valuable things, but the best thing that came out of that was uh, a friendship with one of the, the other uh, students was this guy, Derek Hoffman, who is now like a really accomplished producer. Yeah. He of, still uh, produces for you, right? He produced your new Christmas song. Yeah. Yeah. So he did. Um, we've worked on a lot of stuff together. He did a lot of the stuff on iron and ashes, which is uh, kind of the first full length. Um, and then, you know, um, we've done stuff here and there. He also is kind of, he's one of the guitar players in the band and kind of that the anchor is like the guy I lean on a little bit for band leading. Um, and just making some of those musical decisions. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that, that without him, like, I think I'd probably be back. I'd still be a tradesman because all of a sudden I had access to this person who was passionate about producing music could play significantly better than I could. And then, yeah, I, uh, one day I just decided I don't want to be an iron worker anymore. Like I want to play music. So I quit the kind of turning point for me was, um, I took out an OSAP loan, um, at the time uh, to go back to school and pretty much like I had the money. So it's kind of bad that I did this, but right. I was thinking about music. So I took out this like $10,000 loan and then I made a record with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is the lowest interest loan I will ever get. Um, and so we did a, a, like a record release party in my hometown and in stumbled this very drunk, um, booking agent for Laurentian University, the university here, and they oh, okay. had Frost Week coming up. And Dean Brody was the guy they were bringing in at the time. And Dean was kind of, he, you know, he was coming off of Canadian Girls, which was a really big song. Um, and I had this song called Texas. And Ian, just the promoter, just happened to stumble in at this time and, and was like, oh, I like that song, like Texas, that sounds country. He's like, you should open for this guy, Dean Brody, which you know, in, in, in this like meshed roundabout way. Um, so we took that gig and then I gave two VIP tickets to my guitar player's brother who, um, was a video guy, but his wife loved country music so much. She was like obsessed. So he's like, I'll video this whole show and like, give you like nice video of the performance and the crowd. And basically like what we would now call like a highlight reel. Nobody was really doing back then. Right. Uh, so he did that and then he put it up online of this performance and he tagged like Canadian country, male, uh, singer, songwriter, like all this stuff. And a like somewhere prior to this, I was involved in a thing called um, the Much Music Coca-Cola cover contest. Yeah. Um, and I ended up in the top, I don't know if it was the top 10 or the top five. That was like floating around online. And so this label was looking for Canadian country artists like up and coming and they went on YouTube and they Googled like hashtag or they like hashtag Canadian country. And so this video that my guitar player's brother-in-law of me playing with Dean Brody popped up, which the audio quality wasn't that good because it was like a live, you know, it's like on stage. It's basically just drums and cymbals and bass. Right. But it, it led them to my profile, which then led them to the Coca-Cola cover contest thing, which was just me singing on acoustic. And that led to them sending me an email asking me to come down for like a writing session just to like test things out. And like, I think I was signed within two weeks of that 
so you talk about that cover contest and then I saw in 2017, I think it was one of the first times you played at Can Canadian Music Week and you talked about that sort of relighting the fire. And so these moments that you have, these bigger moments along the way, how important are those for continuing that drive? Because maybe you're at a low point and then all of a sudden you have this thing and it kind of relights the fire and makes you realize why you're doing this. How important are those moments? Yeah, th those are anchor points. Um, 100%. They're, they're like the moments that become um, tangible proof that you're on the right track, right? Um, you talk about the Canadian Music Week performance. Um, I specifically remember, like that was the Phoenix Theater in Toronto, which that's like a legendary, for me, that that was like one of my, I've seen some of my favorite bands play that that venue, you know what I mean? Right. Um, and to, to get on stage, we were opening for uh, Drake White. Um, and I knew like we, we, we had just released a single, uh, called on me, which was my first top 10. And it hadn't, it hadn't done anything. Like, I think it was a week at radio, but right. all, all of like the industry was there. And I remember getting on stage and playing that, um, and just knowing like in that moment, while I was playing, it was like, I was out of my body being like, this is a moment, like, and all the guys, we all got off stage. We were like, like that just turned the tables. Um, yeah. And it, it was like a kind of a, a takeoff point for me. Um, and then another one of those would have been, uh, boots and hearts. Um, the first year we played it, which I don't know what year that 2017, was 2017, I believe. Okay. Yeah. So 2017. Um, and I remember getting on stage and it was like, you know, a four thirty slot on a side stage. Right. Yeah. And, uh, it was pouring rain when we were like line checking. And I was like, looked at the guys. I was like, well, boys, I guess we're getting paid to rehearse today. <laughs> and, uh, and so then we, we kind of like went off and they were like, we're going to hold out like 10 minutes. And sure enough, we came out of the trailer and like half the crowd was full, like capacity. And then we could see like all of these people coming still. And I was like, what is happening right now? So by the end, of, like by the end of song three, it's jammed in the rain to the back and I'm looking around and people are singing like, like B sides, like they're singing deep cuts from the record that weren't singles, like right. we're, we're in the front row. And that's the first time that it ever happened to me. Cause this is coming off the first record I'd ever put out. This is like, I think we put the record out uh, earlier on in the year and then, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm playing my first like big festival and people are singing along the songs that I wrote. And I was just like, this is insanity. Um, so that was another anchor point. And, you know, I, they always come at the right time, right? Because music is such a, such a high, low business, right? It's, yeah. um, you have those incredible mountaintops followed by, you know, these valleys that last for a really long time between singles. Like I'm kind of, you know, I feel like I'm doing this right now, but I just, I'm coming right out of the bottom where, you know, we came off a single and we're coming into, you know, the record's done. And I've been sitting at home as a lot of musicians have longer than normal. We've still played, but not in the same capacity. And, and, and you need those tangible little things to be like, Oh yeah, this is what I do. This is who I am. Right. And you talk about the fans singing sort of the B side music. Now, after your debut album, you came into Cain and Abel, which were two EPs. 
basically eight, one was A sides and one was B sides. Now coming off a successful debut album, two top tens, I believe off of that album, what was it that made you want to take that approach of doing an A side and a B side? Because the B side is very stripped down. It's very raw. It's something you don't know how fans will react to something like that, right? So why did you want to do it that way and, and continue to do it that way with your more recent releases? Um, yeah, so with, with that, we had had, because I think Habit is on Kane. I think I want to say, um, as a single. Um, and so we had already kind of had that tone set for what the EP was going to be, what, what Kane was going to be. Right. Uh, and a lot of those songs were coming in as pitches. Um, and we had, you know, I think five great songs where I was like, yeah, you know, these are amazing. Like, these are great. Like, I love these are really cool songs. I don't really want to give them up, but then what I was writing at the time and where I was personally, it was pretty dark. Like I, you know, I was, I was coming out of um, a few years of, of being single and, and um, really self self-loathing, like just, you know um, I was wallowing it in, in just being sad. You know, I just, right. I, I kind of found a home there and I decided like, Oh, this is where I live. This is who I am. It's part of my identity is that I drink hard. I wake up, I feel like I do that in a few days in a row. And then I, I sit in my living room in the middle of February in Sudbury, which is the most depressing month in the world here, with like 17 foot snowbanks right. and, and go, okay, uh, now I'm going to write sad songs about all of the things that I hate about myself, <laughs> uh, which, which is what happened. You know, that those were the songs that were written for that record. Um, and that's, that's just where I was. So the label kind of said, well, Hey, we don't want to get rid of these because we think there's something special in what you do there. And there's like a connection um, that people can identify with, but then there's, you know, those obviously are not going to sell at radio. <laughs> like you, you can't just be putting out um, the most depressing music ever. So they said, let's do like a record side A side B. And I was like, Oh, what, what better fitting thing than, you know, coming from my past to kind of do the brothers Cain and Abel mm -hmm. where, you know, one is, one is good. And one is sort of reaching for success. Um, it just was like a nice parallel for me. Right. And you talk about sort of the, the difficulty in, you know, the anxiety and that side of things. And I found it interesting that like 2018 was a huge year for you. Like you were touring with Tim Hicks, Dean Brody, the CCMA Ontario rising star award, top 10, most played Canadian country artist at Canadian radio. You're the Sirius XM top of the country winner, like all this amazing stuff happening. But then in January of 2019, you posted that it had been a really weird six months leading up to that. And the 23rd day of January was the first day that didn't bring up anxiety and fear within you. And so what was it within those six months when on the outside, it looks like you're having all this great success. What was it on the inside that was sort of causing turmoil on top of that? Yeah, I think uh, a big part of it, the, the, the main cause would have been um, on those, like on the Dean Brody tour specifically, which was a stripped down tour, one night I got on stage and my voice just didn't work. Like it just stopped working. And that was the beginning of, of those issues um, where my reflux had, had 
just the uh, constant fumes from the acid um, had my vocal cords. When I woke up in the morning, it was the equivalent where I started my day was the equivalent of someone screaming at a rock concert all night. Oh, really? So, yeah. So like, I just, I would lose my voice um, after like 30 minutes of talking in during, like I'd wake up, I'd talk and I'd have no, it would be gone. So then I didn't know, but at that point, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know why that was because I'd had reflux for so long. I was like, oh, it can't be that. It's got to be something else. Um, and then I, I went to see a specialist who had told me that I was, he diagnosed me with a thing called muscle tension dysphonia, which he's like, yeah, we don't really know what causes it. We don't know why it happens. We don't really have a cure, but uh, you just basically have to show up twice a week in Toronto, which I live five hours away from. Um, and for $250 a session, like maybe in two years, we'll be able to fix you. I'm wow. like, number one, like, I don't have that kind of money to invest. I don't have two grand a month to invest in fixing my voice, especially if I'm not playing shows. Um, so that sent me into a spiral of anxiety, which compounded the issue. Um, and then my body just got very messed up. Like it just, I couldn't, I like I could not get three notes out without choking through them. Like it, it was, it was bad. Um, so I ended up seeing another specialist who was like, that's not what you have that, that gentleman, that's his like go-to diagnosis. And it's followed by like, here, read my book, buy it for 35, 40 bucks. Right. So it, he's kind of famous for that. Oh, okay. Um, so this Dr. Jennifer Anderson in uh, Toronto, who was referred to me by uh, my good friend, Jessica Mitchell, who's also just this amazing, she's like got one of the best damn voices in the world. Um, and she, she had gone through some vocal issues and she saw her. So I went in and she's like, you don't have muscle tension dysphonia. What you do have is a, is a lot of swelling around your vocal cords. Um, and I think, I think you're having um, like your reflux is now, is now causing this, like your, your GERD is causing these issues. So she sent me to a bunch of other specialists and it just took me a long time to get answers. And by the time I had answers, I was living so deep inside of my own head right. that it, you know, even when I posted that I was probably having a good day, but like, I just spent the last two years working with a vocal coach, Chanel Guyton out of Nashville, who has just worked on the basics of like, Hey, this is how you sing properly again. And like rebuilding what my body, you know, what my muscle memory is to get to a point where I'm comfortable. And then I got to a certain point and she's like, now, now it's mental. Like now you, you got the yips, you know what I mean? Right, like when it yeah. gets the yips, she's like, that's what you have. She's like, you're thinking too much. So I've been, I've been working towards that and, and uh, I feel good now, but uh, yeah, it, it, it was compounded again, coming off 2018 was such a strong year for me. And it felt like there was, you know, in 2017, it felt like there was nothing to lose because there was nothing to lose. I was just a dude making music who was like, Hey, I'm making a bit of a living doing this. This is cool. If it goes yeah. away, I'll go back to being an iron worker. And then 2018 happened. And I went like this, this is cool. Like this could be a thing. And then all of a sudden I'm on tour and my voice isn't working. I don't know why uh, I'm switching labels, which is, you know, that's like, feels like a divorce. Um, because you're so close with these people. And then all of a sudden you've got to make a decision that's best for you business-wise, but you still love the people that are at that label. But it's like business meets friendship. It gets really friggin' complicated. Um, and then you switch to a new label and you like don't want to disappoint them because they're investing all this money in you. Uh -huh. uh, you're still trying to put out good music and it just, 
it was all of this pressure I was putting on myself, compounding things. I've learned, I've learned to like, let that go and just be like, I love making music and, uh, you know, just do what you do. <laughs> and with 604 records, you signed with them. Dallas Smith is sort of your mentor from, from signing there. The relationships that you've made, especially with Dallas in Canadian country music, when did those start to form? When did you feel like you were becoming sort of a member of that community of Canadian country artists? Cause that's a huge thing in this career. Is it not? Is that support of the other artists? Yeah. Yeah. To kind of be like welcomed into the fold. Uh, <laughs> my publicists who were red umbrella, um, they, there was a performance of a song called she ain't you that we did at the CCMAs. Um, and that song was like another one of those moments for me that kind of turned the tides. Cause a bunch of people came out and like, I made everybody at that patio cry that day because I was telling the story, you know, it's very personal. If you listen to the song, you'll hear it's, it's very personal. I just come out of a relationship and like, you know, I was, I was fighting through those demons and I, I got really honest about my struggles in it. And, um, and then Dallas and Scotty chops or Scott cook, everyone calls him Scotty chops. Yeah. Uh, they were forming this management company and, and Charlotte and Dallas have been close for, for ages. And they also rep Dallas. And she said, Hey, uh, you're looking for management. Cause I didn't have management at the time. And she's like, Dallas and Scott are thinking about kind of starting this management thing. So I met with them, uh, in Toronto with another guy named Sean Austin. So Sean and I were the kind of the first management guys that they've had picked up and, right. uh, and yeah, that, that kind of changed the trajectory trajectory of my career. I ended up, you know, being great friends with those guys. Actually, I got off the phone with Dallas right before this call and, uh, you know, just talking about business and life and, and he's been great to kind of coach me through a lot of the moments that you don't know what to do in this industry where you're like, okay, well, what's my next move? What, you know, am I, am I crazy? Am I on the right path? And, and and uh, he brought me out on tour with him in 2017, um, I think, or 2000, yeah, 2017, uh, the side effects tour. Yeah. So we went out for, uh, you know, 30 some dates and we became family, like with the band and Sean and I, you know, um, became real close. Sean Austin and I uh, just became, you know, like brothers and that, that whole band, like they're just such good human beings. And, and something that taught me is, uh, as an artist, you control your circle, like you control your band. You don't have to have players that, um, don't align with you. And I've been really lucky that I always have, but it's like balancing personalities, right. And getting to right. that where like everybody is, you know, there's always going to be a, a little bit of a rub here or there, but you can make it so that it's like a good family environment and that people, you know, are good humans. And, and he taught me that like, that's a possible thing. And like, I've strived for that in my, my creativity. And it also, um, he brought, you know, with that management deal, Scotty chops coming in. Um, he's been great. Cause he's, he's got, just got so much experience in the industry and especially in country. And, uh, yeah, we just kept working, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and with the career that you've had, I mean, we've talked about it. It's been a sort of slow and steady climb. And in 2020, you had good success with Neverland for you at this point. You know, you've been on this journey with yourself, so you know how long it's taken. But within the industry, you're still seen as a rising star. And so is there a balance there 
of sort of understanding within yourself where you want to go, but also sort of where you are. Like, it's a weird thing to ask, but it's like, you probably feel like you're much farther along than your fans see. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, absolutely. It's, you know, for the people that have, that have been around since 2017, they're like, you know, any, any musician, you know, how, what is that? Uh, five years. It's like anybody who gets five years in the music industry should consider themselves very lucky. And I do because to have even a minute in the industry is, um, it's, it's lucky. You can work as hard as you want. You can be the best of the best, uh, and you can disappear really quick. So I'm super grateful that, you know, people continue to invest. They continue to listen. I continue to get to just make music for a living. Um, but yeah, the rising star nomination, it's a good reset because sometimes, in my own head, I get a little panicky where I'm like, oh man, like this could go away at any moment. But to have that come into play being like, no, like you're still kind of the new guy. Like you're still kind of, <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong. Like there's guys that, that are newer in the category, like Tyler Joe Miller, who's, you know, he's, he's coming up and he's had some, some big success and great song, great voice, you know? Um, but it's nice to know that it's not like the expiry date is still, hopefully a few years away um, and we'll get to just keep making music. So. And is that an important thing to continue to tell yourself is that at this point in your life, you're creating music as a living, you're making a good living at it and not to be too focused on, you know, I have to get to this point in the next two years, I have to be headlining tours, I have to be doing this and that, but to just sort of almost be calm with where you are in knowing that you are living this dream, even though you might not be at the pinnacle of where you want to be. Make no mistake, I am anything but calm inside of my head. (laughs) Uh, You know, obviously, for any artist, and maybe not for any artist, for me, um, yeah, I, I want to chase those headline tours. I, w- I want to get to a point where, you know, I've got a string of number ones and like, like I see what Dallas has created in the industry. I see what Dean Brody's created in the industry for themselves, you know, um, and, and, and many others, you know, you see like Tennille Towns, you see Tennille Arts, um, these artists that are just, they're crushing not only Canada, but the U S so it's like yeah. some of them, just the U S and not Canada, which is Canada is a little backwards sometimes when it comes to to who we're propping up, but that's just the business, right? That's right. Who's pushing where Um, it's not an indication of talent or anything of the sort, but uh, yeah, make no mistake. Like I want that. I want those things, but I also just feel like, um, yeah, you kind of just got to go. Okay. Well, as long as I'm moving forward, then that's, (laughs) that's a good trajectory. Exactly. And moving forward, you talked about the new album is ready to go. So what can fans expect yeah, so um, this record was really different for me um, personally because of the pandemic. I um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I could barely like run Pro Tools. Like I just I didn't like the recording. Like I was I had my basement wasn't finished at the time. This is kind of the studio space, which you can see the door is still not painted. <laughs> right. Not, yeah. Not quite there. The rest of the house is finished, but it was a concrete basement, and I I was like hanging blanket like making a blanket fort to like try and learn to record vocals and um you know the pandemic lasted a lot longer than anybody thought yep (laughs) Uh, or like the lockdown 
So I, I actually ended up cutting by the end. I cut all of the vocals here at home. In oh, my wow. Studio. Um, so that was a very different experience for me in the sense that there was no time limit. If I didn't love what I had done in that 40 minute span of singing, I could go and make lunch and shower and hang out with my dogs, play with them outside, have a fire in the backyard, come back and like, you know, in my slippers and a friggin' hoodie and no pants sing again. So I feel like this record, um, there's a little bit more personality in my voice um, just because I I had the time to take, right. I, I, there was no, there was no rush. And um, obviously you're always trying to elevate with every song. Um, the next record and the next record. And, and I feel like we did that with this. There's like a little bit of a nod to like old school country, but then there's also um, just like a fun vibe to the record. There's, there's a little bit of everything, which we, we haven't always done sometimes, you know, with, with um, the Neverland record, we really, I w- you know, Neverland being probably the most country song on the record. I really pushed like the rock envelope on that. And that was kind of a thing on the, on the back end, as far as like commercial country would take rock. Right. Like I, I needed that was, you know, pretty much a rock song uh, <laughs> and, you know, I love it, but um, this, I think there's a little bit more, more to dig into as far as um, like pretty melodies and, and, and hooks that are going to stick in your mind. Thank you once again so much for listening and thank you to Andrew for stopping by and sharing his story. Be sure to check out his new single, Don't Nothing Change, wherever you stream your music. Please also be sure to like, share, follow, subscribe to us wherever you are listening. Leave us a review, a rating, tell your friends, your family, your neighbors to come on by and have a listen. And please be sure to join us every week for new and exciting episodes with your favorite country music artists. Thanks once again for listening and we'll see you next time on Country Music Made Me. Mm